Thank you to Josh and Irvine, Irvine and others who have helped organize this evening. Um, Dr. Umber also just mentioned he was just inducted to the Development Hall of Fame, so maybe he can tell us more about that later. But it is a very innovative project, and I will focus some of my comments on the Pegasus Radius, um, but I'll try and address some of the general context and issues about related to debates around water in the Middle East, water and conflict specifically. We live in a moment when per capita water demands are increasing, per capita availability is declining, and continuing population growth and economic development continue to fuel these trends. I think these issues bring to the fore questions about our, our ability to manage water and use water in ways that will allow us to continue to do so into the future, especially when we consider industry, drinking, and ecosystem and other needs. At present, over a billion people lack access to a reliable supply of safe drinking water. And it's estimated about every year about 10 million people actually die from water-related disease related to that lack of access. So one of the sort of primary points I'd like to get across is whenever we're talking about fresh water, questions of water access, I think questions of equity and distribution are always paramount and need to be considered. So whenever you have sort of general per capita figures, it's always really important to sort of parse out or think about how that plays out geographically, spatial distribution, or who has access in different ways, in which case a lot of these sort of average figures in some senses come to be meaningless. Just to sort of highlight this question of inequality, consider what I just mentioned in terms of 10 million people a year dying um, basically from lack of access to fresh, safe fresh water. Also consider that in the U.S. we use about five times the water per capita that people in lesser developed contexts do. So clearly, and questions of inequity are always foundational and really central to any discussion of fresh water use and access. So what you have in front of you here is just an image that highlights average annual runoff. And you can see here there's obviously geographic variability <coughs> in terms of fresh water access. An image like this, however, tells us nothing about the seasonality of water, so when access water is actually available. And it also similarly tells us nothing about the quality of water. And these are all questions I want to sort of keep in play as we continue to discuss this tonight. So dealing with this question of how we've, through time, tried to manage water in a way that makes it available when and where we want it, we've sort of adopted a host of technologies and practices <coughs> to make this happen. I've listed here some of the sort of major ways that we, as populations, have transformed you can call it hydrogeographies or otherwise water use, water geographies around the world. So these are just some of the most notable things that we've done, all of which have in part created and contributed to these trends that I'm mentioning, overall meaning declining water availability and also declining water quality. I've listed here um, water quality changes, some of which are indirect, so loss of wetlands is a very important thing to think about declining water quality, as are questions around pollution and different other uses. Um, land cover change, deforestation is central. I've also listed climate change as a sort of indirect driver that's also important to keep in the back of our minds as this sort of looming question mark and uncertainty, especially when we think about future uh, freshwater issues. So I just wanted, sort of by way of introduction, to show you some work <coughs> that's being done by professors John Foley and Mike Coe at University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I am. And this is work that they've done on Lake Chad Basin in Africa. Um, but what they've sort of found is remarkable. Here you have a satellite image from 1963. They've marked the border of the lake at that time. You can compare it to 1973, 10 years later. You can see decline in the lake system. And then in 1987, it 
represents a 95% shrinkage of Lake Chad since the 1960s. And based on the research, what they've been able to find is a good part of this is due to natural variability, continued drought in the region. But just as important, they found, are water withdrawals up in the system for irrigation specifically and irrigation practices. This is just one example. There are a number of other examples like this that we've seen, especially in the last several decades, which is part of this equation and these general figures around de declining availability and quality. We have other examples like the RLC, um, among others, that all sort of speak to this question of changing use and access to water. So when people consider these looming questions around quality and quantity, often the Middle East is highlighted. And very often there are several basins within the Middle East that are highlighted with respect to these questions. A number of theorists have begun to ask, is, are the declines so important? Is water stress likely to be so important that we're actually going to see the sort of intense outbreak of conflict in a number of these basins? So the examples that are frequently given are from places around the globe, but as I said, the Middle East is often highlighted. So among the basins that are highlighted are the Nile, shown here, which has 10 riparians, or states that share these waters. The Jordan Basin, with which many of you I'm sure are familiar, but which is shared by Lebanon, <coughs> Syria, Israel, Palestinians, and um, who did I miss? Jordan. And the Tigris-Euphrates is also mentioned quite often by theorists, uh, theorists as a hot point for these sorts of issues. And I'll mention why in just a second. And most of the comments for the rest of the evening, especially given Dr. Umber's expertise, will be around this basin. One thing I want to highlight before we move forward is let's consider each of these basins. So again, the question is often framed as, is there going to be future conflict around water? What I'd like to sort of underscore, in, e in each of these basins, there's already significant instability and or violent conflict. So in the Nile Basin, consider the long-standing um, war that went on with Eritre Eritrea and Ethiopia and the current situation in Sudan. So one of the questions I'd like to think about is how do these sorts of conflicts and instabilities generally impinge on future water use, future water management, the ability to create effective institutions, cooperative capabilities, and so forth. So I want to think about water and conflict not as only a linear question of will water stress result in conflict, but how does water interact affect these conflicts? How do these conflicts affect water use, access, and management? Again, we all know um, the continuing violence and situation with respect to Israel-Palestine. And in the contemporary situation, the current situation in Iraq and related instabilities there, I think, have bear very importantly on questions around future use, conflicts, and so forth in this basin, um, as has also the continuing and sort of intermittent Kurdish conflict throughout the basin as well. So one of the major, major points I'd like to make is that we need to consider the relationships between water and conflict, not only in this sort of question mark around war, but what are the diverse ways that water and conflict interact? How do they influence each other? How do these sorts of instabilities sort of lessen or impinge on our ability to effectively manage water? And likewise, how might this inability contribute to future instabilities in these regions? So I'll address a little bit some of those questions. I said that I would address at least cursorily a little bit why people mention the Tigris-Euphrates Basin. There are a couple of reasons why this is considered sort of a potential flashpoint for future conflict. One is when you look at estimates on future use of the waters between the three main countries that share it, that being Syria, Iraq, and Turkey, 
estimates are about 150% of the Euphrates and 120% roughly of those two river systems are planned for use, which is obviously um, not likely considering that's overtapping supply by a significant amount. Uh, Aaron Wolf has also done a lot of research looking at past conflict to try and analyze what are the sorts of indicators or things that we could look for that makes conflict more likely. Some of the things he's indicated, which are also present here, are situations when there's no binding agreement between all the parties. Here there is an agreement between Turkey and Syria. There is an agreement between Syria and Iraq, but there's not a comprehensive plan per se um, for planning around water in the basin. He's also identified presence of previous conflict, including ethnic conflict. And again, here we have the contemporary situation in Iraq <coughs> and also historic conflict around the Kurdish issue throughout the basin. And another primary reason why people point to the Tigris-Euphrates Basin is, and this is using Aaron Wolf's uh, framing again, they say that it tends to be more likely conflict when you have an upstream user who's making unilateral decisions about use of the water. So a lot of people point to Turkey's Southeast Anatolia project where Turkey's developing much of these river systems through damming and uh, other development water diversions in ways that have not necessarily included planning related to Syria and Iraq to say that this makes um, the situation more tense potentially in the long term. And again, we'll talk more about this project, and especially Dr. Indar's presence here tonight as one of the people who led that project for a number of years. So just to sort of call out what I'm trying to say here about the relationship between water and conflict, I've used the term geographies of water and conflict to sort of make us or ask us to think about these relationships in a more complex way not only thinking about state relations, potential for state war, but tying it to intrastate conflict. So how does the Kurdish question impinge on these issues? How does the current situation in Iraq within a downstream state impinge on these issues? What are the connections between the situation in Turkey and downstream Iraq? So to really broaden the question and the sort of interrogation around water and conflict. I've also tried to think about not only violent conflict, but especially go back to the figure I gave you at the beginning, 10 million people a year die from lack of access to fresh drinking water. I'm very interested in not conflicts per se, that's more people than die of war in any particular year, but what are the sorts of other conflicts, well-being, insecurities for people that relate to water issues? And to really broaden the interrogation to consider that. So one of the examples I'll give you is, for instance, looking at livelihood conflicts that might emerge with certain uses or management of water. And I'll come back to both of these. So just to show you a couple images, this is um, taken, this is a hydroelectric facility at the Ataturk Dam, which is the largest dam in the, the Gap Complex. It's about 20 dams in total that are planned or built. This is on the Euphrates River. It's the largest hydroelectric facility as part of the complex as well. Just, th just a little downstream on the Euphrates, this is the Birgic Dam, which was built in 2000. So that here, just to give you a sense of the context and the development projects underway. So a number of people have argued that not only is it an important question to consider will these future stresses result in conflicts, but how might water be so critical for human experience and e economies and other things that it actually might broker peace? So there's this sort of parallel literature some of which has the same authors, who consider the ways in which water can be central to creating cooperative relations between states, especially over time. And historically, we've seen a number of examples of this, um, some of which have been more or less successful. One of the ones that's often mentioned is the Johnston Plan under Eisenhower, 
And basically at that time, Eric Johnson was sent to the Middle East um, largely to focus on use of the Jordan to, with the idea that this would eventually broker cooperation or peace more generally between the states. So what they focused on as part of that plan is dam building, uh, canals, water diversions, creating a sharing arrangement specifically between Jordan and Israel, all with this idea that if we can at least get some of these water issues out of the way, this might set the foundation for cooperation more generally in the region. Another example that's very interesting is the technical cooperation um, that emerged between 79 and 94. These were secretive talks that took place between Jordanian and Israeli hydrologists, engineers, um, officials. They actually met on the, ba the banks of the Yarmouk River. And Yarmouk is here in the top right of the image, one of the tributaries for the Jordan. Um, and what they did is they actually met secretly. It had to be secret. At the time, Jordan was not formally diplomatically recognizing Israel. Had these talks been found out, it would have compromised Jordan's position significantly. Um, and every year they would meet. They would come up with a plan to share the waters. Um, some of the things that are significant is over time that technicians and engineers were able to build trust. They no longer came after a period of time with their armed guards. And they kind of, a lot of people attribute these secret talks to laying the foundation for the water provisions that eventually were in the Oslo Accords and later the 94 peace agreement um, between Jordan and Israel that was signed. The sort of third example that I hope Dr. Mver will speak to that I think actually fits within this framework is the sort of work that he and others are doing on the Euphrates Tigris, again, with the idea that if we can have established technical cooperation between engineers, hydrologists, and others, this can eventually potentially lead to larger peaceable or cooperative relations between states. And to some extent, I think the Nile Basin Initiative, which I'm only somewhat familiar with, but it's been um, forged by a number of groups where they've actually come to, at first, starting with water cooperation, and have come to formalize commitments of each of the states on the Nile Basin through that. And some people are very skeptical about this view. I think especially if we look at the Yamuk example, there's reason to be very hopeful about the ability to sort of start small with this sort of technical cooperation and eventually sort of set the stage for larger cooperative relations. <coughs> so I'd like to scale down a bit and talk a little bit more specifically about GAP again. And here I want to present to you some of the research that I've done looking at the effects of GAP in the southeast region. And so what you see here in highlighted in green is the Southeast Anatolia region, which is really the target region for this development project. And as Dr. Umber will describe, it's a project that it started with primarily water-related development, but it's grown to involve a lot of social and other economic development projects. One of the things that I've done for research is to consider some of the primary ways that this project is meant to benefit communities in the Southeast is through water diversion from the rivers. This is water being diverted from the Euphrates um, for irrigation purposes, so to allow irrigated agricultural possibilities. Some of the research I've done is in this bottom sort of rectangle here. It's called the Haran Plain. It's about, you can see the Ataturk Dam Reservoir. There, water is basically being channeled precisely through that, um, what I just showed you in that last image, to the plain for irrigated agriculture. This is only the first 10% of land eventually intended to be irrigated through the GAP project. 
Um, some of the other colored areas here show future irrigated areas. So one of the ways that irrigation has sort of fundamentally transformed the plain in particular is through transition to cash cropping, particularly cotton. So a number of people often note the success of irrigated agriculture, particularly for promoting economic uh, growth and well-being. And in the early years of implementation of irrigation, we saw, um, based on some of the figures Dr. Umber cites, an increase of 300% uh, income average per household in the plain in the years immediately following transition to irrigation. A quick note, this is prior to the 2001 financial crisis. And because Haran is a small area, it's uncertain whether or not similar benefits when irrigation continues throughout the region would be experienced. But one of the sort of questions that I would ask people is really to understand in a more complex way what else was happening with this increased income. Um, people talked quite a bit about more work, which you can imagine if you're switching from winter wheat to cotton production, which is very labor and input intensive. People talked about more debt which again was worsened by the 2001 financial crisis for many farmers. People talked about increased expenses. So in short, imagine initially you might have been having your own sheep and goat and growing your own winter wheat or lentils, which meant that you had a lot of, you had yogurt, you had meat, you had wool, you had barley and other things that you could consume directly. Now if you're growing primarily cotton, you need more money to buy things on the market. Um, but people did mention more income for things like cars, tractors, and also second wives. And I don't say that as a joke. I'm happy to talk more about gender issues. That's one of my primary interests when I look at this project and other aspects of development. Um, one of the other sort of interesting questions that comes out of this um, transition to irrigation and what this new water geography enables in the plain is in some extent the transition from what was in the past primarily a herder economy, sheep and goats, to settled irrigated agriculture specifically for cotton. And as that transition takes place and is sort of entrenched, it becomes increasingly difficult for people who are herding to continue to herd their sheep and goats because basically there's not grazing land available for them to do so. And again, this is limited to the plain. There would be other areas of the southeast where it would still be very I'm showing you a quote here. This is not actually the man who made the quote for confidentiality reasons, but a man of a similar age and background. But this is a quote from Amit, age 29. He said, it was said that gap was happiness, or is happiness, gap is survival. But it was like a suicide pill for those of us who are animal breeders. It prepared our end. Right now, it gives me discomfort. When I asked people in general, this is a survey that we implemented in 11 different villages of the plain, what were their overall impressions of the last loss of animals in the plain? You can see it was overwhelmingly negative here, very positive is on the far left, very negative on the far right, and the majority of responses were in either of the two negative. However, when we asked people in general for your village, how has irrigation been? You can see the exact opposite. Overwhelmingly, there's a positive response to the sort of general effects of irrigation specifically um, in the context of this development program. So maybe someone like Amit would be in the far right, a fairly small number relative to the overwhelming positive response that farmers have to this sort of project. 
one of the things that we were interested in and that I've been interested in in thinking about this project is how it, effect, it potentially affects state-society relations, um, especially in the region. So here are a couple of quotes that are fairly representative of the sort of things that people said. At least the state turns its face towards us. The state thinks us about us now. We did not see any accomplishments of governments in the past. We are a little bit happy to see some now. We had hatred before, but they started investing in the southeast. The state started to think of us. We did not trust the state before, but now it brought electricity, water, and phones. And to us, now we trust the state a lot. You can see here then these sort of positive associations with irrigation effectively translating into a different sort of relationship between citizen subjects in a region such as the southeast and their view and understanding of the state. When I read these sort of comments, and again, a lot of them were in a similar vein, I think that a project like this, while you know, initially you're on the face of water development project, has serious implications for changing the way people understand themselves as citizens, especially in relation to the country. And here I want to return to this question of geographies of water and conflict. Let me reinforce that the Southeast in general, though not necessarily as much in the Huron Plain, has a history of conflictual relations with the state. There's been a lot of violence, um, especially related to Kurdish separatism. And much of what fueled the PKK movement in the Southeast was this notion, a lot of the discourse that they deployed was this idea that the state doesn't care about you, you're impoverished, it's better to sort of separate from Turkey. So I think these sort of changes that are associated with the changing altered water resource geography are very significant to sort of overcome this history of conflictual relations uh, in the Southeast. And that's one of the ways that I want to try and think about or understand how changing water geographies potentially relate to relations of conflict um, and so forth. So a couple of conclusions. And let me just go back. I think I failed to mention <coughs> the other part of the geographies of water and conflict that I wanted to say was to broaden beyond the notion of violent conflict to think about livelihood conflicts and so forth. So I might think about that transition whereby animal herders have a more difficult time to herd in the irrigated landscape as another sort of conflict, in this case, livelihood conflict that emerges as part of this new irrigated landscape. So a few conclusions. I think at present, um, given that much of the world lacks access to basic sanitation services and more than a billion, as I said, lack potable drinking water on a regular basis, I think there are significant water-related challenges and now and also into the future. Many indicators that they'll be in increasingly important in the future. Secondarily, I think because water is so central to our economies, livelihoods, and other things, it's centrally linked to questions about conflict and peace and security. We can't have livelihood security um, or other broader general notions of security without secure access to water in some senses. <coughs> Just to reinforce the point that I'm making about geographies of water and conflict across scales, here, let me reinforce, things may in the Southeast may be improving, especially overcoming the histories of conflictual relations. At some sense, that might be at the cost of um, more difficulties downstream. And again, some of the work by Wolf has shown one of the most likely outcomes. You might ha not have state-state war, but you might have increased ethnic or interstate violence, especially in downstream countries um, when you have these sorts of situations. The other point is water is strongly linked to inequalities and insecurities. And again here, let me just underscore the current situation of, a, in, of Iraq and how important I think that is to any question about the future of the Tigris-Euphrates Basin 
questions similarly around Sudan or Israel, Palestine. Um, just as an aside, if you can imagine if Iraq had been sort of a very central diplomatic player on the world stage, or Syria for that matter, over the past several decades, it would be interesting to think about what the implications would have been for Turkey's ability to move forward with this development project in this way. And it's most likely an overestimate, but the most dire estimates, and Dr. Inver can correct me on this, the most dire ones that you see in the literature are that with the joint development projects happening on the Tigris and Euphrates, flows on the Euphrates might reduce as much um, as 80% in Iraq and 40% in Syria, and that would include planned development in um, all the countries. So obviously, to think about what's the future of Iraq, the future of security, you have to consider this sort of changing water conditions as part of those questions. And now I think, especially as the U.S. is increasingly invested in that equation, it will be interesting to see if the U.S. in particular brings any pressure to bear on Turkey or otherwise. Um, the other sort of very basic point is that Turkey's future well-being and security is strongly linked to that of its neighbors. And here you only have to look at the estimates of losses to Turkey from the first Gulf War even, and from the sanctions, often I think the sanctions are estimated at least $20 billion loss for Turkey economically. So you can imagine that well-being and security economically and otherwise in Iraq I think is really important for Turkey's future. And the last point, again, fairly obvious but I think worth repeating, is that strong and effective institutions are clearly needed. And here I think we can commend Dr. Inver's efforts with respect to his initiative for cooperation on the Tigris-Euphrates. And I hope that that will serve as an introduction to what he'll tell us in his talk. Thank you.